This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. Welcome to Ramdas Here and Now, and I'm Raghu Marcus. Today, it's about the battle between the mind and the heart, that interesting battle that we all have going on. And um, in this talk, Ramdas uh, delivers this uh, idea that there is another way of being in the universe other than how we get born into this ego system. We are programmed by our environment, our parents, society, and we're programmed to, you know, keep everything cool. We're you know, we, it's the first chakra stuff is keep safe and then ultimately, you know, happy. All of the societal things and pressures that bear upon us to um, keep all those defense mechanisms operating and uh, keep us separate. And that is how we come in. And the other way is uh, he call it, the Chinese call it the sinzin or heart mind or what we would know as intuitive mind it's a different way of knowing the universe not through uh, dualistic means or thinking about something it grokks it understands it becomes one with it subjectively we merge with it it's the difference between wisdom and knowledge and we all know about this uh, so very well in our day-to-day lives. How many times have, have you seen suffering or you hear about it? And it's more about something that's close to you, you know, is the best example. How many times have we wanted to reach out to someone, but we are stopped by that mind? Too dangerous, too involved, could get in the way, whatever it is. And... It's not that uh, we do need boundaries. Um, it's it's not that you just let yourself uh, go into whatever situation comes that you know feels like it needs attention and and you're ready to you know give all your money in your house and you know I mean it obviously has to have some uh, balance to it, but. Um, you know, how frightened most people are that they'll lose control if they truly open to this other dimension of being with another being. And um, the question is, is there a way to be in daily life in a way that one can keep their heart open and still, you know, define boundaries, as we said, and honor those other planes of consciousness? So interesting here that he gives uh, an example. It's funny, and it happened to me in the same place. Of course, it makes sense. Uh, and I mean, he tells a story of when he was in Benares. Now, Benares in India is the place. It's called Kashi. Uh, it's called uh, Varanasi. And uh, it's an ancient city. And that is where people, many people go to die because if you die there, you uh, you get Ram Ram whispered into your ear, the names of God, and you can move on to your next incarnation in a, um, let's just say, 
it's a very complex thing here, but uh, you have a better chance of a better birth. Now, as what they say. Um, now, when you walk down, I mean, Benares, so this has been going on, they've been burning bodies there, you know, by the banks of the Ganges River for the last 5,000 years, 24-7. So it is quite a uh, interesting place. Now, Ramdas was walking down, uh, I guess, by the river, and he came upon some lepers, and he had a bunch of coins that he was going to give out, all of different denominations. So he'd look at someone in, with half a face, from, you know, leprosy, having eaten away uh, at at the face, at his face, and oh, he should get a lot of rupees. And then he meet someone with no arms, should he get more? So he, you know, he just got completely an overload and he gave up anything at all. And, uh, you know, thinking, how can he sit there and judge and just justify how bad anybody is and how much money to give them? But then he looked in their eyes and there was just another human being. And how open can you be to that other human being? Back to the way, you know, that we just talked about, that there is another way of being. But how do you get into this place? So I, it's an experiential thing because the same thing happened to me. I got on a train. This was on a train leaving Benares. And I was with my family at the time, my father and wife-to-be and brother. And uh, I went. I was going to go to, I guess, the other car. So I was walking down through the train and just in that middle kind of uh, place from one car to another where people hang out, there was a leper. And he had, um, and he just looked at me and, and I, it was just sudden. I just contact, we just contacted each other eye, eyes to eyes. I had been in India for some time then, so I was used to some of it. And, uh, but still, I was still living with with that uh, ego system, not ecosystem or ego ecosystem, uh, where you know fear, fear was there, fear of my own self ending up sick like this, fear of what he looked like. I mean, he's uh, in his case, the digits of his hands had been eaten off. He had no fingers; fingers had been eaten off by the. Uh, leprosy. I mean, so we just looked at each other and, and then he motioned and I was like, well, I don't have any money, but I had some banana. That's what I was doing. I had gotten off the train and gotten some bananas and got back on the train. I haven't thought of this in a long, long time. Not until I heard Ramdas talk about it. So I gave him bananas and he held them between his wrist because he had no fingers and he looked at me as if to say, listen, <laughs> you need to help me. And here I am in this moment where I'm deathly afraid of, oh my God, if I touch this guy, I'm going to get it. Oh. I went through a million conniptions in that moment. And there was no choice. That's what it came down to me, for me. I had no choice. He needed to eat. I had to peel the banana and feed it to him. I was, you know, I don't know, what was I then, 20, mid-24, 20, five years old. This was all, I mean, if you can imagine. But I had been with Maharaji for some time, and I had uh, gotten 
a little bit out of the eco ego ecosystem um and so but in that moment um i i realized because we just cut through him being a leper and me being a westerner with money and he wasn't you know i stopped being pitting and fear and all that all those emotions just stopped because in the necessity of giving him feeding him the the banana it all went away so yeah that was um what else does he say here intuitive wisdom is not really respected in our social and and, and economic roles um and of course that's uh you know perfect example of that uh he uh ramdas's work with a lot of dying people and aids patients and so on so he's had to confront this but uh, and and some of this talk was definitely uh to people who are helping people so he was speaking to that how to remain in your heart and uh you know and and be able to really be of service to people and not be the doer and 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 get into i think the heart mind that place uh is something for us to investigate uh in our uh maybe through some of these podcasts and whatever else we're doing it, we should actually start something about investigating. Uh, and, and, you know, we can look up this, uh, sing, sing, uh, the heart mind from the Chinese tradition. I think that would be an interesting place to start. Well, here he is, Ram Dass, here and now in the battle between the mind and the heart. It's an interesting battle that goes on between the mind and the heart. When you develop, when you were born, and you became somebody, the computer system that runs somebody, which we could call the ego structure, it's a, it's a, a matrix that makes you deal with most information is irrelevant and just take in what you need to survive, and then ego survive, etc., And this structure says, I will keep you safe, and I will keep you optimally happy. Hang in with me. But the problem is that there is another way of being in the universe. The Chinese call it the sin sin, the heart mind. We often call it the intuitive mind. That has a very different message and a different way of knowing the universe. It doesn't know the universe through objective means. It doesn't know the universe dualistically. It doesn't know the universe about thinking about something. It grokks the universe in the Heinlein sense. It is one with it. It subjectively merges with it, so it is wise about it. It doesn't know it as knowledge. It is the difference between wisdom and knowledge. Uh, example that I've often uh, that rem stands out so vividly to me. I was teaching a course at St. John the Divine in New York, maybe five years ago, four or five years ago. 
And there were about 200 students, all of whom uh, were required to go out into the community and do service. Uh, either they were doing it already or they did it in the, either working in soup kitchens. It was all around homelessness. So it was shelters, politics, actions, um, street patrols, whatever it was. And then we had an open microphone and they discussed what it was like. We were trying to understand the places we could serve from that wouldn't burn us out, basically. And one woman, when she was holding the microphone, she said, well, what I have to report this week is that every day for the past eight months when I've been leaving my apartment to go to take the bus to work, there is a man standing on the corner with a paper cup with some coins in it, and he's rattling it. She said, um, and I give him money now and then. And then she smiled sort of sheepishly, and she said, he's been there so long that I've worked out a budget. I give him two and a half dollars a week, and I put it in at random times, so he won't know. She said, but you know, as a result of taking this course, I realized that in all these months I have never acknowledged his existence as another human being. And she said, I realized that I hadn't because I was afraid. I was afraid to let him in. She said, I wondered, why am I afraid? I'm not afraid he's going to rape me. I'm not afraid he's going to steal my pocketbook. I've known him for eight months. She said, I realized that I was afraid that if I opened to him, he'd end up on my living room floor. In other words, she was afraid that she would not be able to set boundaries if she once opened her heart. And as we explored that, we recognized how the heart, which has this kind of boundless embracing quality to it, is seen as a threat by the mind. The heart says, my heart goes out to you. And you know when you love somebody, what do you want to do for them? Anything. What do you need? You need my car, you need my money, you need my life. Take it, I love you. And the mind's saying, now wait a minute. We have health insurance to pay. And it's interesting because I don't think most of us suspect what a high price we're paying to keep ourselves uh, bounded. How, we, how our own hearts often become our enemy. And because, especially in, in careers like you all have, in which there is so much call for the heart to be engaged from moment to moment. And how frightened most people are that they will lose control if they truly open to this other dimension of being with another human being. So I would ask now, I mean, I ask myself and I ask, we are asking ourselves, is there a way to be in my daily life in a way that I can keep my heart open, define boundaries, honor 
share these other planes of consciousness. Because if I could do that, then I would be fed by every relationship I'm in all day. And if I were fed, why would I burn out? I mean, isn't it true that most people burn out because they're starving to death? They're busy giving, and then they're all gived out. Well, they're taking on somebody's stuff, and then they've got this load of stuff that they've taken on, and they, they get sick. Isn't there a way to dance in human relationships such that... Let's see how to say this. Is this too heavy, or... Are you okay? okay. Am I kidding? No, I'm not kidding. <laughs> I can barely understand it. I don't know. <laughs> well, what I found out over 25 years of exploring this question is that yes, it is possible to live in the world with your heart open. It is possible to bear the unbearable. It is possible to define boundaries without closing your heart. Kabir, the poet, said, do what you do with another person, but never put them out of your heart. What an incredible line. Never put them out of your heart. That you can say no to somebody I have to work hard to be able to keep my heart open to people whose policies I disagree with. I have a holy table with pictures on it of Buddha and Christ and Maharaji, my guru, and Mary and Anandamai. And I used to have Casper Weinberger on the table. <laughs> but I now have replaced him with Bob Dole. And uh, so in the morning I say, I say, Good morning, Christ. Hello, Buddha. Good morning, Maharaji. Hello, Bob. And I, I see how far I have to go yet. Because after all, it is merely God in drag who's saying, I bet you won't recognize me this way, will you? <laughs> They're all faces of the beloved. I mean, it depends on what you're looking for. That's what Mother Teresa is saying. If she's psychotic, I want to be like her, you know. It's like... Now, um, let's examine for a moment the word unbearable. The information age you and I are living in and the depth of the suffering that we each confront every day on CNN, on the way to work, at work, you know, in the mirror. <laughs> I mean, it's just immense amount of suffering. You can hardly take a step without meeting another victim. <laughs> I couldn't resist. I mean, it's just, that's the rascal in me. <laughs> and indeed, that amount of suffering for your heart to contain 
is unbearable. You can't bear it. An individual heart can't bear it. I mean, are you going to feel bad for the Bosnians? Are you going to feel bad for the the Arabs that have been pushed out? Are you going to feel bad for, you know, the Somali people or the Somalian people? Are you going to feel bad for the inner city people? Who are you going to feel bad for first? Maybe you say, well, I've got some time to feel bad for myself. The root of that, it seems to me, is in having gotten into an imbalance in yourself between your own sense of separateness and your sense of being part of everything around you. That when you're alone inside yourself and with your rational mind, it is almost impossible for you to understand the mystery of how there could be so much unfair suffering in the world. How could children be starving to death? How could all this be going on? Who would have designed this monstrous game? And we find ourselves in an interesting position of, in, a, in an interesting way, judging God. Now, I don't need you to think there is a God. If you don't, don't feel offended by my saying that. I mean, I'm talking about the, the wisdom inherent in the universe. That when you find yourself in the position of judging the wisdom inherent in the universe, you're saying, somebody screwed up here. If I did it, it would be different. I wouldn't have all this unjust suffering. And you put yourself in opposition to the way things are with your mind. By judging it. You get into a judging mode, it's called. Judging mode of mind. But what struck me, especially as I started to enter into these other states of consciousness and study them in all of the religious mystic traditions of Gnostic Christianity and the, the Kabbalah, Hasidism, Sufism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, uh, etc., And what I, what I had experienced and what I studied reinforced a sense of me as a separate entity with my rational mind was not in the best position to judge the whole game. That it's in, in logic you say a subsystem cannot know the system that is meta to it. that your rational separate entity is only a part of a bigger system and that little part can't necessarily understand the whole system as long as you're identified with that part. So what happened to me was a, a new regard for the mystery of the universe, for the I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I just don't know. I don't know how it all comes out. I don't know. And feel how uncomfortable that is in our culture. I don't know. Somebody comes up, can you help me? I don't know. Do you think I'll ever get better? I don't know. Uh, it's a great story that you 
most many of you know, of the farmer who had a horse, and the horse ran away. And the neighbor of the farmer came up and said, gee, that's too bad. The farmer said, you never know. And the next day, the horse came back, and it was leading a wild stallion behind a beautiful wild stallion. And the neighbor said, aren't you fortunate? The farmer said, you know, you never know. <laughs> Shortly thereafter, the farmer's son was riding the wild horse and got thrown and broke his leg. Farmer said, the neighbor said, I'm really sorry about that. That's, that's too bad. Farmer said, you never know. Shortly thereafter, the Cossacks were coming through conscripting all the young men, but they didn't take the son because he had a broken leg. The neighbor said, how fortunate. You know what the farmer said? You never know. <laughs> We are taught not to be comfortable with a mystery, especially we scientists. It's like a, it's like a, uh, um, a red flag before a bull. A mystery is some failure of our intellect. Instead of considering the possibility is the mystery is the home base in which we live. And to be comfortable with the mystery of I don't know. So it is with the issue of suffering. Like if you look at your own suffering now, and I'm sure everybody in this room has had ample and abundance of suffering. I know it's been a drag, and I know you'd rather not have had it. But now when you look back and look at what has developed of your character and your being and your compassion and all, are you sure, are you absolutely sure you would have liked a suffering-free life? Do you think it would have brought you to the level of compassion and understanding you are now? Is there the remotest possibility, and I realize it's offensive to even say this, but there are Christian mystics who say it all the time, that suffering is grace? What a bizarre thought. Now, there are many levels of understanding that term, Suffering is grace. And one of them is as you decide that your life journey is a curriculum through which you are awakening to the depth of your being which involves these many planes of consciousness. When you suffer, you learn something about who you are from the fact you are suffering. To explain that. When Gautama Buddha, he did all these yoga purification practices, and finally, one night, he was sitting under the Bodhi tree and he got enlightened. Whatever that means, he did it. And he said, look, I can't tell anybody else how to do this. All I can do is create conditions and they got to do it for themselves, which is basically his teaching. Go do it for yourself. When he first gave his first sermon, which was the four, what's called the Four Noble Truths, his first truth was, this is, imagine this, this is the first thing after enlightenment. He says, 
On this plane of existence, there is suffering. Well, any idiot can see that. He said there's suffering at birth, there's suffering at death, there's suffering at old age, there's suffering with sickness, there's suffering in not getting what you want, there's suffering in getting what you don't want. And he said, at another discourses, he said, there's even suffering in getting what you want because it's in time and it's going to rot. Christ saying, lay not up your treasures where moth and rust doth corrupt. So believe me, he said, there's suffering. His second truth was, the cause of suffering for any individual is the attractions or aversions, the clinging of their mind. Here's an example. When I was younger, I had more hair. And I had an identity of myself as somebody having hair. So as my hair started to leave, I would wear this part of it very long, which I would then wind like this and spray, and then I'd be aware of where the wind was all the time. I was literally being somebody with hair who was suffering over the loss of it. At some point, I, I gave up. I don't know what I did, but I became bald. And it was interesting, the minute I accepted what I was, the suffering disappeared. It's like this culture which worships youth. And when you get old, you're supposed to play shuffleboard and be irrelevant. And as we re regain our respect for elders in the society, when we start to redefine what it means to be an aging society, what we have thrown away in the way we have been a hunting tribe that has made aging irrelevant, and the way in which we need to bring back the whole structure of the extended family and that, and that uh, way, and, and elders have to demand it, nobody's going to give it to them. And they have to be wise to demand it. You see that people can become, you meet elders who are not busy suffering because they're not young. If you live in New England, every autumn the leaves change. A riotous color, a riotous set of colors. Actually, the leaves are all dying. And you say, what a beautiful autumn we had. What a terrible thing to say. I mean, doesn't that sound bizarre? Because don't you appreciate the cycles of autumn, winter, spring, summer? It's interesting... Gene was talking today about living in other cultures. When you live in other cultures that have a respect for the stages of life, you see how much people are content within who they are rather than wishing they were something else and holding a model of who else they might be. So there is a certain awareness that you cultivate 
of an appreciation of the universe as it is without you feeling called upon to judge it all the time. By using the term, I don't really know. This is a mystery to me. I just don't know why this has to be this way. I mean, you and I are part of a species that spends one trillion dollars a year on military hardware at the same time as 45,000 to 60,000 of us every day are dying of malnutrition, or 15 million of us a year. And one week's budget of that military hardware would be sufficient to cover that malnutrition. That's who we are. That's not them. That's us. That's us as a species. Now, I don't understand that, do you? I don't feel like I'm that person, but I am, in fact, that person. I am part of a system that is that. The issue of how to be with suffering has to do with getting out of the judging mode in your mind into the allowing the possibility that there is method in the madness, that there is wisdom. You don't have to buy any particular theology or metaphysics. You just have to allow for that possibility. Because, you see, the suffering is unbearable if I am sitting in my separateness judging it. Because it's too horrible. It's too much. I can't handle it. I wrote a letter to a couple that's been published by Elizabeth Ross and Stephen Levine and people like that. It was a letter to a couple whose daughter, whose 11-year-old daughter and her friend had gone to play tennis and they had been brutally raped and murdered. And when I wrote the letter to them, I couldn't imagine what I could possibly say to this couple. What could I possibly say to them? What I could hear was, what you are facing is unbearable. And because it's unbearable, it'll force you out of your mind, really into another way of being in the universe in which you will have a sense of feeling as God feels, seeing as God sees. I was in Benares and I was standing I was walking down a line of lepers. They all had begging bowls, about 80 of them or so, maybe 100. And my friend and I each had big handfuls of coins of different denominations, like 10 cents, a dollar, I mean a rupee, 10 pice, whatever. And I started down the line, eager to share with them. But I found myself in this peculiar position. I'd look at somebody who had half a face, and then I'd look at my coins, 
what should I do, give ten pice or a rupee? The next person had no arms. Was no arms worse than half a face? You hear the horror of that? And I was so uptight I couldn't look at any of them. I was busy with my rational mind trying to figure out what to do. And I got about three down the row, and I went on overload. I just couldn't do it anymore. And I gave up. I gave up. And something snapped inside me, and I just went down the row looking into each other person, each person's eyes and then just picking whatever coin I picked. I stopped trying to justify the relationship between the coin and the illness. I trusted something else. I trusted another level of functioning. And in the course of that, I was able to look into all their eyes. And when I looked into their eyes, they weren't looking at me, judging me for being a rich Westerner. They were just right there. They weren't even busy being lepers. They were just there as people. And I ended up, the end of the row, feeling very nourished by having met them and not feeling I had just dealt with lepers. I had just shared stuff with other human beings. It turns out they have a union and they share all their money. I didn't know that at the time, so... so. <laughs> But you and I have what you call intuitive wisdom that is not really respected in our social economic roles. We can say we're using it, but you're not hired for it, basically. You're not hired for it. It's a soft commodity. I mean, when I was a professor at Harvard, the intuitive mind was treated like a weakness that women had. I mean, I started, I'm old. This is way back then. Can you imagine that? Men are rational, women intuit. Well, in the past 30 years, the game has certainly changed. Because as we begin to appreciate wisdom traditions, as we begin to see what a completely screwed up mess our rational analytic mind has made of things, with its technology and its, its zeal, its zeal to control nature, and make us happy. And how it hasn't done that there very well. The intuitive heart-mind, the Sin Sin Ming has come. It started to get new attention. And then we suddenly realized that the Native Americans on whom we've all but committed genocide might have had something that we need to know. Those primitive people. Thank you.
there are there are ways in which you can take the exact life you're living now the same job you're fulfilling the same relationship you have and recognize that what shifts for people is perspective about it and accept the responsibility that one of the things about your growth in your life is the ability to play with perspective to shift perspective so looking at suffering from my emotional heart as a separate entity who is frightened of suffering and frightened of death suffering stinks looking at suffering as part of the mystery and seeing it as the buddha said the cause of suffering is the clinging of mind you let go of the clinging of mind and you end suffering and then how all the practices that are designed to help you let go of the clinging of your own mind so you're not busy suffering all the time I mean you've all dealt with people that have died and you see that some people die suffering and some people don't the people that die suffering are the people that are clinging to something they're not in the moment cuz death is just another moment it's just oh here comes death Ooh, there it goes again <laughs> don't let me sneak that over here Another perspective is one where you can look at suffering just as it is and say ah so because it is you are comfortable with the mystery of not knowing why it is so and when you can hold that perspective at the same time as you're holding the perspective of you as a separate emotional empathic entity that says this is terrible you have a balance in your consciousness that allows you to be with suffering as it is not as you wish it were there has to be a place to stand inside oneself where one has equanimity in the face of what is in the universe We talked this morning there was a discussion about hope and hopelessness. A very wise Tibetan lama once said to me, the best place to stand is halfway between hope and hopelessness. Cuz if you hold and then it doesn't uh if you deny, it may make it harder for it to happen or deny that it happens 
another disconfirmation. To be with somebody that is suffering, to not know, to not know, even though you're paid to know, to not know really the essence of the nature of suffering. To acknowledge what is, which includes their suffering, it includes your skills, your what you have to offer, it includes your heart hurting, it includes all that, and it's all part of the total existential universe, which includes clouds and rivers and babies being born and new roses and all of it. When you meet a mensch, a mat- that's a Sanskrit word for mature being. <laughs> And you say to the mensch, are you happy? You say, yeah. Think of all the things to be happy about. Well, are you sad? Yeah. Think of all the things to be sad about. Look in your own life how much you feel that in order to be happy, you have to look away from that which makes you sad. I don't want to think about that today because I want to be happy. Let's not think about Bosnia today, okay? Just let's have a day off from Bosnia, from ethnic cleansing, so we can be happy today. That is what's known as standing on tiptoe. It is not the happiness that surpasses understanding. It's not, it's not equanimous happiness, believe me. What you are looking for is a quality of presence and happiness and isness that allows the universe to be just as it is, including your ability and desire and skills to do something to change it. I walk into a room with a fellow who's got advanced AIDS symptoms. This happened a month ago, maybe in Washington. He has a uh, extreme case of candida down his whole esophagus to his stomach, and his mouth. It's very, very uncomfortable. He was a brilliant publisher, editor. He's young, handsome, running a fever, has come through a bad round of dementia, was a needle user, a junkie, and uh, stopped maybe 10 years ago. So I come into the room to see him. He's asked me to come see him. I sit down on his bed and I take his hand and he starts to express all his rage. His rage at the doctors for not giving him enough pain medication. Because he's an ex-junkie, I mean, of course, you know what he wants. His rage at his family, his rage at God, his rage, his rage, his rage, his pain, his discomfort, his horror. Not only that, he can't commit suicide because he converted to Catholicism the year before. I mean, he's really got himself in a real good corner now. 
my first reactions are within my psychodynamics. That is, I feel empathy for his predicament. And I feel dis-ease around it. I feel the anger he feels. And I feel the sadness he feels. The loss of his life and the youth. and I feel all that. And not only do I feel the discomfort of the feeling and empathy with what he's feeling, but I'm feeling guilt also because I'm feeling I'm happy it's not me. I've got all those feelings. They're all awash in me. All just pouring through me. And I sit with him, and he's going on and on about all of how horrible the universe is. And I'm going through all my empathy about all this. And I would say for the first 40 minutes, that's what our relationship was about. I did very little. I didn't say hardly anything. I was just there with him. And I, I suggested other doctors. I did, I did whatever I could do within that system. He started to quiet down a little bit, and our eyes started to meet. And there were the moments of the recognition that we were both in there. That he was not just a person with AIDS and candida and a lot of pain and discomfort. He was a being who was somebody with AIDS and candida and a lot of discomfort. And the being which went from ground started to come out as figure. And we started to flick in and out of that with our connection. And by the beginning of the second hour, we started to rest comfortably in that one, just appreciating the predicament we both found ourselves in on li in life. And by the end of the second hour when I left, both of us were in ecstasy. We were both like as one awareness dancing within the forms of death, of sickness, of pain, of joy, of drama, of being Ramdas, of whatever. We were just watching the parade, the, the passing show of life, and we were both in a place of great quiet and joy together. And I came out and I was absolutely ecstatic. And I realized it had taken me about an hour to see through, to get through my own reactivity to his situation. To come into a place with him where I was quiet enough to be able to meet him behind the pain of his situation. Now you don't have necessarily the luxury of having two hours to spend with somebody. And I see that the two hours it took for me 
was because I was so still attached to my own separateness and my own, that plane in which there was so much suffering. And I saw that I was in the process in my life of working on myself to get to the place where I could keep these planes of consciousness simultaneously in my awareness and not get stuck so fast so that I can go right through to seeing the person behind the veil. Now, just because I can see behind the veil of another person's suffering doesn't mean their suffering is going to end. What it means, however, is that my mind creates an environment just as each of our minds does in every relationship we have, it creates an environment where another person can be who they need to be. I have no moral right to tell him he shouldn't hold on to his suffering and his anger and his pain. That's up to him. That's his life. All I can do, though, is create an environment where if he wants to come up for air, there's nothing in me that's going to keep him stuck being somebody with AIDS because that isn't... I'm not locked into that reality. When you think of going into a room with somebody sick, I ask you how difficult it is for you to see through the veil of the situation to realize that it's one being meeting another being through this form of nursing or doctoring or social working or administrating or whatever it is. This podcast has been brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate all the support for the Foundation and for Ramdas's work, and we hope that you will continue that support. You can go to Ramdas.org and click on the Donate Now button and follow the prompts. Thank you.